Today I'm talking with Trevor Bohm. I first met Trevor on his 40th birthday in the aftermath of having lost his marriage and his business in a single day. Devastated by these events, he embarked on A Year to Live, inspired by the Stephen Levine book of the same title, whereby he lived an entire year as if it was his last. This conversation is very touching and insightful. We discuss the realities of divorce, we find out how Trevor found meaning and put his life back together through service. We look at what it means to return to dating and relationships and to be guided by the gut instinct, something Trevor calls his God of the gut, and how he advises divorced men that he works with today. We also learn about Trevor's year to live. He worked with the elderly and the dying in the public hospice system of the United States. He spent a month in pitch black meditation cell in Guatemala and much more. He's a very inspiring and heartfelt man, and I think you'll really enjoy this one. So without further ado, here's Trevor Bohm. So Trevor, can you tell us a bit about that time leading up to your embarking on the Year to Live project and how you developed your stronger everyday philosophy? Sure. You know, the the, the lead up to it, um, as most, I think the lead up to most big transformation is, was a massive amount of loss. So in a very, very short time, I went from being married with a kid on the way and having uh, a very successful business to my now ex-wife and I losing that pregnancy. And then very shortly after, she left and said she wanted to end our marriage. And within a day, uh, my business partner at the time also said he was interested in ending our business relationship. So... All of a sudden, my life went from going one direction to going completely the other direction. And it led to this massive amount of space being opened up. More space than I literally knew what to do with, uh, in addition to a massive amount or equal amount of pain suddenly coming into my life. Uh, I hadn't dealt with a lot of loss before. My parents weren't divorced. People that I know, know didn't pass away. I didn't have major health issues. You could say it was kind of a charmed life up till that point. Hmm. And so it, it led to this question of like, what the hell do I do with all this space? Like literally now I, I don't have a, I, I'm not going to have a job because uh, I chose to also to carry on with the partnership ending. Um, I'm not going to be married. I don't have a, I'm not raising a kid. What the hell do I do? And I got a lot of advice, Steve, which was, you know, get married again, start another business exactly the same one you had, just do it somewhere else, and pick right back up where you left off. And um, it didn't feel like the right fit. It felt like to me that all of the space had been opened up, maybe not for a reason, but within that opening, there was potential. And I didn't want to look back, you know, 10 years from then and say, yeah, I just, I just pretended it didn't happen or checked the box and then jumped right back into my, my same routine. So I started asking myself questions of what can I do with this? How can I use this? How can I make the most of what really is a, a pretty shitty situation? And um, I came up with the idea. I'd read the book, A Year to Live by Stephen Levine and had heard about this program at Against the Stream Meditation Center in LA that they do a year-long sort of once-a-month set of meetings. But it was all internal work. It was all meditative. 
and uh, mm-hmm. that they were trying to answer the question of if you were given a year diagnosis or a year terminal diagnosis, how do you prepare yourself for that last day or that last minute or that last breath? And I thought, huh, I kind of feel like I've died. Uh, I feel like crap every single day. I feel like the life I was living has died. My marriage is dead. Okay, why don't I use the same concept of death and pain, but instead of waiting till the very last year, you know, I'm 82 or 85 or hopefully in my hundreds and saying, okay, now I get to go and and do this life review. Now I get to go apologize to people that may or may not be alive. Now I get to say I love you to people who may or may not be alive. Now I want to do these last couple bucket list items. Now I need to do X, Y, and Z to heal whatever open wounds I still have in my life. Like why wait until then? And why not do it now, which is, you know, I was just about to turn 40 when all of this happened. Uh, I actually met you on my 40th, 40th birthday. Yeah. Um, so I thought, why don't I do it at the halfway point so that the second half of my life is radically different? The second half of my life has the past issues that I hadn't dealt with cleared up or healed as best I can. And I've picked up more knowledge, experience, and kind of, yeah, I guess that's the best, guidance from with which to live the next 40 or 50 years. It's one of the reasons I sought you out was what do I need to learn that I don't know now so that I don't repeat the mistakes of the past? So that's mm-hmm. really how it all came about. And the, the idea of one day stronger, which was the sort of the mantra that I adopted throughout the year leading up to the Year to Live project because it was so damn hard, uh, was just to say every day, no matter what happens to me, if I have to deal with attorneys, if I have to deal with my ex-wife, if I have to face loss directly, no matter how bad that loss is, at the end of the day, I've, I've won. At the end of the day, no matter what, I'm one day stronger. I've, I've survived it. I've gotten through it. Hopefully, I never have to go through it again. And I can, I can look at that pain and say it taught me something. I can use it or it can beat me up and break me down. Mm-hmm. And so that was really how I, I threw it all together. You know, it's interesting. A lot of men um, go through divorce. A lot of people go through divorce, and many men are devastated by it. Yeah, and they're they're left in ruins financially, emotionally, and and very often, I think one of the overlooked or uh, missed consequences of divorce is that is the lack of meaning. The, um, yeah, men in divorce can be left totally bereft of, of meaning or the orientation you know, that their life was about. Um, and in the wake of your divorce, I understand many men approached you for advice and, uh, and solace. And yeah. What could you say about what, what are the realities of divorce you know, on yourself and on the sort of men you met? I mean, you, 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 you pivoted the thing uh, into this year to live and so on. But before we even go into that in, in greater detail, what's the reality of actually the divorce uh, experience? It's hell. It's absolute hell, uh, or at least it was for me. I, I know there's some people out there who say, oh, it's, it's the best thing that ever happened, or uh, you know, why is divorce so expensive? Because it's worth it. It was absolute hell for me. 
because my family, despite it not being, you know, I don't have, I don't have kids, uh, but I had a wife and I had a dog and I had a house and I had to me a family and that got ripped apart and it got, in my case, got ripped apart in a day. And it was this feeling of, I was on one track, like say I was looking down the, the length of a railroad track and then suddenly that track was gone and there was just wide open space. And so speaking to people all along the process uh, when, when I first went through it, and even now, so much of the feeling is that we're just floating in water. And there's really nowhere, they don't know, men don't know where to go. Even, you know, say, make it equal, women don't know where to go. It's like we were on one track. It's like getting pulled out of, you know, a 20-year graduate school program where you know what's going to happen the next year and the year after that and the year after that. And then suddenly you get kicked out of school. It's like, well, shit, what, what do I do now? Do I just try to recreate what I had? Which a lot of men do. I, you know, I got an interesting statistic from my divorce attorney that I don't know if this is true, but I'll trust her. She said that for the average man, they are dating their next fiance, or their next wife, within three months of being left. Three months. And so... One, how much can you learn in three months, especially the initial three months where you're just reeling with like, how, the, how did this happen and, and pain? And two, it shows how quickly we want to we cover that wound. And we can't sit in that discomfort of what do I do now? And so one of the things I like to ask guys who have gotten divorced is like, what's available to you now that wasn't? Maybe you didn't want this divorce, and, and I think something like 80% of divorces are initiated by women, at least here in the U.S. So that means 80% of men getting divorced didn't really want it. But what does it leave them with? What, what opportunities do they have now? What, what is available? Like What are these kernels of potentiality that may not have existed before or they just didn't have access to them? You know, you had a family to support or a wife to support or, you know, the parameters of partnership that now suddenly don't exist. What can you do with it? But um, to answer your specific question, and divorce is hell. And, and I went right into working with a therapist immediately because I was like, I'm not going to survive this on my own. I need help. I know that I'm, I don't have the skill set to get through this. And I asked him in the beginning, um, I said, you know, is, is this a big deal? Because my ex just keeps calling this a breakup and says that, you know, in, in a couple of years, we'll meet in a coffee shop and we'll just laugh about this and say how, what a great, great idea it was. And I was like, I'm a mess, man. I, I, I throw up in the mornings. Like I, I'm sick to my stomach. I've lost weight. I'm, and I consider myself a strong guy. Is, am I just overreacting? And he said, I'll, t- I'll have clients that come in here, brother, that are divorced for 20 years and it's still screwing them up. It's still beating them up. They're still not over it. They still haven't recovered. You know, have they done the work? Who knows? But it's, yeah, it's, you know, I I wish someone had come to me early on, Steve, and said, this is going to be awful. Don't listen to her. Don't listen to the nonsense and the dissociation of like, oh, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. Yes, it has the potential to, but also acknowledge that, man, you got dealt a huge blow on the emotional realm, physical realm, and if it so applies on the spiritual realm, 
that this is a massive death, most likely one you didn't ask for. And then the ramifications of it, especially for guys, you know, financially or not getting to see their children, um, et cetera, are, are, are in my opinion worse than they are for women in most cases just because of the bias of the courts. So it's, it's hell. It's really, really hell. It is, it has been the greatest challenge of my life. It seems like there's something as, as significant as that, something that overturns so many of your basic operating system lines of code and so on, and ch- you know, changes a lot of your assumptions about, about how your life's functioning and so mm-hmm. on. It seems like to integrate something like that, something that significant is very, very difficult, very challenging. What happened, the keys for you to, to integrate the possibility, say, of that happening again? How do you look now relationships? Uh, how do you look at marriage? Uh, is, it, is it something you've sworn off uh, or is it something you're you know, seeking out or something in between? Or how, how do you integrate going forward in relationship um, or not uh, after something like that? Mm, that's a great question. Uh... It taught me more about relationship than anything else previously. And it, I think in my case and in many men's case or many people's case, it, it blew the fairy dust off of it. And so it was, it was reality. And the reality to me now, like when I was married, and of course we had challenges, I always thought like, well, we'll never get divorced because that's just not who we are. So divorce was never a possibility to me. It was something like, oh, we'll work this out in the end. We, we both made a commitment for life. I now know that forever does not exist in relationship. And it changed my view of relationship in a lot of ways. One, I enter into relationship now significantly more slowly. I first saw my ex-wife. I was madly in love with her. Like love at first sight, bam, all in. Uh, so one, it made me look at my own relationship to relationship of am I engaging with this other person out of a sense of need, out of a sense of neediness, or out of a sense of now co-creation and partnership, where I'm okay with the fact that it may not be fireworks the first time we meet because that's not real. That's projection and, and some other stuff going on. So I haven't sworn off marriage, but I don't care if I ever get married again. Uh, I care about having a really, really deeply profound partnership. And I care about learning um, from my marriage. And, and I went back through it, man, fine-tooth comb, and said, what, what were all of the ways that I screwed this up? Or, or how are the ways that I could have been better within my marriage, better at communicating? Every level. Again, it's one of the reasons that brought me to you. Uh, just a deep introspection of, okay, how do I not go through this again? Even, and I know that's impossible to, to forecast, but it changed my view of relationship and um, also that surviving it, I now realize I can get through anything. And so I enter into relationships, not with a bravado, but a much higher level of self-confidence and a much different level of uh, self-actualization of saying, for I went into my marriage saying, I need this other person to be okay, for me to be okay. I want to be with this person for all of these reasons that look great on paper. I don't 
really feel amazing with her though. So, but that's okay because, you know, I need her to be okay and all these things on paper. Now when I enter in a relationship, it's like I have one hand on my stomach the whole time saying, how does this feel? How does that feel? Hmm. How does this feel? And then all the paper stuff is irrelevant. So I think it, it like 180 to my view of what was important and what isn't important. Um, yeah. With your hand on the stomach there, it sounds like you're, um, you're sort of inferring gut instinct or a sort of a bodily feeling yes. that you're using to guide. Yeah. Um, what can you give some, some examples of the sorts of, uh, of the sorts of, uh, behaviors or interactions or little signals that you might your your body reacts to that your mind in the past perhaps wouldn't have on a date for instance sure just certain yeah you know i i recently ended a relationship this was maybe a month or two ago and anytime there was an incongruency between what she said and what she did i got a little tummy ache it was just like a flash of like ow And my brain, even in this, even after all of this, you know, work and introspection and sitting in a cave for a month uh, in the dark, my brain would go, it's okay, she's beautiful. And I'd have to relay back to, yeah, 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 but that's not important anymore. What the stomachache is far more telling than what my eyes are seeing. And my eye, it's like permanent beer goggles by beauty. So anytime there was an incongruency, I think that was a biggie. It's like, wait, you said this, but you're doing this. Huh. Or little things that, you know, idiosyncrasies that I have that she wasn't interested in or turned her off. In the past, I, my brain would say, okay, I need to get rid of those or change those. And I would get a little stomach ache now. And then the thought was, this isn't going to work because this is who I am fundamentally. So I think it was more of a reliance on a deep knowing that, of course, I can, I will make, uh, not change isn't the right word, but I won't, I can't change who I am in relationship anymore. Where when I entered into my marriage, it was anything that is displeasing to her that, well, I just need to get rid of that or stop doing that because if she's happy, she'll stay. Now the, the view is I am who I am. I'm amazing in, in all these ways. I'm challenged in all these ways. The right partner will find that to be what she's interested in and will see the challenges as potentialities for us both to grow together. But it's a far different experience to say, man, I don't care how my stomach feels. I'm just following my eyes and my head and my dick to now say my stomach is king. My gut is God. If that doesn't feel right, I have no problem just standing up on a date, shaking your hand, saying, thank you so much, you know, but this isn't going to work out. Thank you for your time. Hmm. That's quite a radical reorientation. Yeah. Because as, you, as you're saying, a lot of guys, are, a lot of people are not in touch with their bodies. They're not actually, it's not so much that they're necessarily ignoring their gut. They, they can't even feel it. Yeah. Have you always ha had a sort of... Been clear about these these gut instincts and clear about the sort of bodily emotional feeling of oh, I'm not so sure about this or is it something you had to work on? I know you're a, a very dedicated meditator and and uh, have been involved in fitness and training and all that for you know all, all of your life. Um, how do those things feed in? 
Yeah, I, I had a sense of them, Steve. You know, here's the asterisk that I haven't said about my marriage is that I was high every single day of it. I smoked a ton of pot. Yet I would go to work as a CrossFit coach and I'd walk into the room full of, you know, 10, 15 people multiple times a day. And the first thing I would do would be to take a deep breath and feel how my stomach felt. I could just get a sense of the room. I could even walk over to people and say, like, hey, what's going on with you today? I can tell something's up. And inevitably, that person would like break down and be like, how did you know? Oh, my God, I'm having the worst day. I was like, oh, my stomach told me. And then I would go home, and I believe now in hindsight, have that same negative feeling in my stomach, but say, well, I can't, you know, I can't end my marriage. I made a commitment. Or it can't be that she's the wrong person. She fits all these boxes on paper, and she's so beautiful. So I'll just have to get high and ignore them. So I, I had this intuitive sense, I think, from, you know, just uh, constitutionally, and then, as you said, nurtured over years of meditation, um, years of Tai Chi and, and Qigong and acupuncture school, and just feeling, you know, sitting in a room. It, it's a beautiful. It was a beautiful training for me to to be an acupuncturist, to sit across from someone and say, okay, my head says one thing. Let's just take a deep breath and feel what everything else is. So it was an actual daily practice as well. And now something that is like almost a game to me, you know, sitting on the subway in New York, I'll try to just see who I can feel or, or dating was a fantastic set of experiments, not to, you know, take anything away from the women I was, I was sitting across from, but I would try to play games with them almost with my stomach. You know, can I make this person nervous? just by f creating a gut feeling and seeing if I can send it across over to her and then watching a couple of them like start sweating profusely and say, like, I don't know what just happened, but I just got super nervous and I'd laugh and, and to myself like, yeah, I just, I just stomached you. Uh, so it was more of, of a daily practice, one through work, through meditation, through, through other ways, through martial arts. Um, and now just, you know, it's like having a new toy. And, and I think the more, anybody feels and they realize they have been dissociated from that set of feelings or that experience of feelings, it's, it's even more exciting and enticing to play with it. You know, you said most people just don't feel their guts or their bodies. And I completely agree that uh, we're, especially in a, in, here in the U S we're so disconnected from our, our physicality. And all you have to do is flip on a television and you're going to get bombarded with commercials telling you not to feel and hear all the hear all the drugs you can take so that you don't feel and the coffee you can drink and the alcohol you can drink and the the everything that's you know constantly the cell phone that's going to blurp anytime you are feeling. So yeah, it was it's become a much more interesting practice, but I think I always had it to some extent and then um, was was terrified of it because it meant Listening to it meant making decisions that may not have been what my head wanted, ego wanted, or um, other factor wanted. Mm -hmm. So going on from there, you've decided to take this year mm -hmm. and and you know and, and do this uh, year to live. What happened next? I sat down in front of a whiteboard, and I put twelve calendar months on the whiteboard blank. And ask myself, what would I really, really, truly, honestly do with myself if I knew this was my last year to live? And the asterisk by that was also knowing 
that I'm setting myself up for the rest of my life, no matter how long that may be. And I just sat there and meditated and meditated and meditated and meditated. And anything that popped into my consciousness, I wrote down. And the, as, as I said to you, the very first thing that popped in was, um, I'm going to volunteer in hospice. I was like, oh shit, I've never done that before. I don't, I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to do it. I don't even know what that means. I wrote it down. Where is this going to happen? New Mexico. Okay. I've actually never been to New Mexico. I don't know anything about New Mexico. I'm what the heck? All right. Write it down. And so it was this mix of listening to some kind of divine guidance or whatever my mind or whatever was coming into me. And then again, asking the question of what do I need to do to heal my past? So who do I need to have conversations with? Who do I need to reach out to and say, man, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, this thing I did was shitty to reach out and say, I love you to reach out and make connection as well as what do I really need to know moving forward? What don't I understand well as an American white male at 39 years old with my given set of experiences? I don't know a lot about this thing called intimacy, be it with myself, be it with other men, be it with other women, just period. It's not my specialty. Okay, I'm going to find out, I'm going to seek out amazing instructors and, and educate myself in this fashion as well. Okay, what's one thing I've really, really always just wanted to do? And if, you know, ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to do a survival course, just a wilderness survival course. Awesome. See if I can find one. Uh, the dark retreat, which is, you know, was like the cornerstone of the year, actually came to me. Uh, I went to a men's group. Uh, with um, with Robert Masters, the guy that wrote To Be a Man. And another man on there talked about his experiences in the dark. And I was like, I'm sorry, what did you just say? And uh, he explained it to me as the closest thing he experienced to death. And he actually had a, a, a terminal illness when he was explaining all of this. And I was so fascinated by it. So I, I looked that up as well. Um and, you know, just was really open with the question, Steve, and, and kept dropping it down lower and lower. Like, what would I really do? You know, what would I need to do so that if literally I died January 1st, that last breath would be taken in peace? I would say, you know what? I went after it. I, I didn't waste time. I didn't, I'm wasting time isn't the right term. I've done all the things I need to do. I've closed the loops as best I can. I've put my effort into healing. I've forgiven the people I need to forgive. I've asked for forgiveness. I've explored. I've gone on an adventure. This was a wild and crazy adventure. I've met fascinating teachers and guides and other people along the way. I've listened to incredible story. I've shared all of this publicly in a blog or on, you know, so it was shareable. I've let other people in on my experience. So I've tried to be of service in some way. And I've just expanded what I consider to be my horizons, you know, a hundredfold by all of these new and incredible experiences. And in talking to people all along the way, I would ask them that question, like, what would you really do? What would you do if, if you found out this was your last year to live? And I'd watch their reaction and then ask them to take it one step lower. You know, a lot of guys would like, oh, I'd go to Thailand and bang hookers. Like, okay, 365 straight days you do that? 
You wouldn't call your mom. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go to your childhood elementary school just to see it again and, and then try to break them through the, just the mind chatter. What would you really, really do? And I know I had the, the, the gift of you know, not having a wife and kids, and uh, I just sold my business to my partner so I could finance all of this as well. But there were so many people along the way who'd say, you know what, I'd, I'd pick up the guitar again. I'd say, well, why don't you just pick up the, the, the guitar tonight? Go, oh, wow, you're right. I, th- I think I will. Or I would go back to art school. I would go to grad school. I would, I would leave my relationship. I would, I would ask so-and-so out. I would try. I would, just, I would leave my comfort zone. That's really what it came to. And I would leave my comfort zone in a way that's particular to me and the most meaningful to me. And that's what I was hoping to inspire people to do. And, and believe I did inspire people to do. Not everyone can just drop out of their life and travel for a year. And I get that. And I don't expect that. Um, but everybody can spend an hour today or two hours this weekend or, or make shifts in their lives that of the things that they're just stuck in these repetitive patterns of. Like, I will someday. I will someday. I will someday. You know, it was it was permission given, Steve. Like, what per- I gave myself permission to say yes to just about everything. You know, someone has said like, hey, this weekend a bunch of us are going, you know, I'm in Guatemala, a bunch of us are going and, and trying ayahuasca. Cool, I'll do it. Let's, let's do it. Um, I'm going to go to this vegan cooking class. Cool, I'll do it. You know, just stuff that normally like, nah, no, nah, I can't do that. Or nah, there's football on, I'm, I'm engaged in this other thing. So I just packed a year as full as I could and had a lot of even had a lot of open space to write and think and reflect and 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 try some new stuff. Hmm. Yeah, that um that blog uh is that is that blog on trevorbohm.com or is that you to live? Yeah. Tra- that's yeah. a really hilarious blog and one of the um, Thank you. Yeah, it's really well written. The uh Thank you. Uh the uh you've got a three-part article on there about uh, the workshop you attended here with uh, here in Ohio, which I was teaching yeah. with Michaela Boehm, no relation. And uh, it's very funny. It's very insulting to me, but uh, <laughs> they're very long. Lovingly, lovingly. Portions of your inner monologue uh, bent towards my destruction. And if you're curious, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's very funny. But it's a very inspiring and interesting, you know, very inspiring read, you know. Um, Thank you. Let, let's go through some of those experiences. Um, uh, you know, I worked in hospices also for the elderly and dying in my teens. Wow. And I, I have to say, it was the most, I would say the most immediately satisfying work yeah. that I ever participated in. And there's, you know, it, I think it's a great honor, actually, to support people at, at that stage of their lives. Yeah. Um, and it's often the little things that afford a dying person dignity you know the way you wash them for instance or as an example can you can do that in a way that gives them as much dignity as possible or mm-hmm. you could do it in quite a perfunctory way and, and it and it could be quite dehumanizing mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. um i think it's a tremendous honor to to serve someone in that in that way and i understand it was very very touching a deeply touching uh, experience for you, and you made ex- very deep connections there. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your experience at the hospice? Yeah, it's it's just what you said. It was, um, it was such a great training ground 
for space holding, for breathing, for for being just of deep, deep service. And I mean that in what can I do for you today just to take a little bit of pain away or add a little bit of lightness. And for some patients, it was, hey, will you read the Bible to me? Well, sure, I'm not, I'm not Christian, so this doesn't – I would immediately just say, yeah, that would be amazing. I'd love to. Hey, let's play a game of cards. I would love to. Let's just sit and talk. I would love to. Certain people you know, weren't, didn't really have the ability to speak, but you could just hold their hand. And so it, it was such a gift to learn personally the value of just being human you know, and, and coming, I was in the middle of divorce proceedings. So I was in a terrible space myself of, you know, dealing with attorney emails and, and emails from my ex-wife saying that, you know, she didn't want to just, just stuff that was hurtful. And then going to this person's house or to this elderly care center and having someone be so grateful that I just showed up, that that's it that I ate a meal with them or took them, you know, took their wheelchair out in the parking lot and cruised them around for a few minutes. So they got some fresh air. It was this, just this beautiful experience of, uh, of, of being with people, as you said, like when they're in their most vulnerable and almost innocent, that just to see their faces light up because you walk into a room and someone's coming to visit them. Someone's coming to spend time with them. And they know for the next two, three hours that they've got a friend or they've got companionship. They've got uh, someone on their side. You know, it was, uh, it was a really, really beautiful experience. And I learned so much about, um, about death and that what an incredible gift death is because so many of these guys really were, were actively, eagerly looking forward to death and were upset in the mornings when they woke up still alive, given that their day was filled with pain and annoyances and loudness and rudeness and indignity, as you say, which is true. The situation is just indignant that they've got a roommate. You know, these are people that have raised raised whole families and yet they're here they are alone. They've got someone screaming in the room next to them or all night, or it's, it's just a very difficult situation to be in, in a, a public nursing facility. And, uh, so, so getting that gift of, of viewing that, wow, death is amazing. What, what an incredible gift. And, and even, you know, I have a, a story about a guy that he was 93 years old and he, he kept asking, say, you know, he would say, like, I think God's upset with me. He's keeping me alive. My, my brothers are all past. My wife is past. Like, why won't he take me? And, and I wouldn't know what to say, so I would just listen to him and say, "Well, I'm sure he's got a plan," or, you know, just talk him through it as the best I could. And I left to go to Guatemala uh, to do something else. And then when I came back, I had actually gotten word that he had been in and out of the hospital two or three times, which was. Um, Interesting, given that he was in hospice. But I came back, and when I saw him, he looked like shit. When I left, he looked fairly strong. I was like, oh, man, you may have three or four more years than you left. And I came back, and I took one look at him and walked right in the room and put my hand on his shoulder and said, 
you made it. You're not going to be here for more than a couple more weeks. Congratulations. And it was, it sounds, you know, out of context, that sounds like a terrible thing to say to someone. But in context, you know, his eyes lit up. I said, do you really think so? And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think you've got that much more time left. You're going to get to go see your wife. Uh, and that was such a radical transition from how I'd felt about death for my entire life of, you know, death is what you fear. Death is what you avoid. Death is not, you know, if people die and it's upsetting. Uh, but to have that experience of, yeah, 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 death is, death is amazing um, and, and such a gift. And it's just a transition to a different place that uh, that whole experience, like I, I really, if I could impart and I've, I've told people, if you want to learn more about yourself, more about the human experience, more about humanity, more about kindness, compassion, empathy, all the things that we you know, we look at on Instagram and, and put quotes up about go go volunteer in hospice. Just you know, go read to someone who's who's on their last legs. Go sit with them. Go listen to their stories, and and you'll learn more about yourself and other people than is. It's like a crash course PhD, and you'll most likely hear some of the most incredible stories you've ever heard. You know, guys that were, you know, at Normandy and and in World War II, and just these amazing stories of the life lives they've led. It was like it was so much better than Netflix thing I could find at home. Uh, in addition to the lessons of it, and that's not to say that it wasn't brutally hard at times. You know, I, I remember driving home from from working all day or from volunteering all day, and just having to rip my car into a parking lot and push park because I knew I was just going to start bawling uncontrollably. Because something, it wasn't sadness for them. It was just being around sadness and being around pain. I needed to like dump that out of my body. Uh, it was it was a challenging time in that regard. But the duality between the challenge and the the gifts gleaned from it are um, are, are magnificent. And that's that's something in the U.S. people can do, isn't it? They can they can volunteer to to do that. To go to the hospice, uh, you know, spend time with these with the people there. Yeah, I, I had to go through you know a background check, and I think I got fingerprinted, and then spent a day of like you know four or five hours of these are the forms you need to fill out because I was volunteering specifically for an organization as opposed to showing up at a nursing home and saying like, hey, can I just come in and read to someone? You know, it's it's available that you know, these places. Um, it, it's really interesting, Steve. They're not hurt. They're not. There's not a lack of volunteers. However, I called four or five places before someone would give me a call back. So there was this really interesting, weird contrast. Like, hey, you guys. I remember telling one woman, like, do you guys want me to stop calling you? You you don't call me back, and no one. And I'm I'm literally here saying I've got three months of volunteer service to give. And, and the front desk woman would be super frustrated and say, like, I know, I know, I trust me, I've passed your name on. They're just, most of it is they're just overwhelmed. So yes. even after I left specifically, like, hey, my time with this particular organization is over, I would just go back to the nursing home and sign myself in and walk down the halls and find the, the guys that were still there. And if not, drop in on someone else's room and say, like, hey, I'm, I'm Traver, I'm a volunteer. They didn't need to know what I was volunteering for. You know, do you mind if I spend a half hour with you? 
and no one ever, none of the patients ever turned me down ever, ever, ever. And you also spent a month in in pitch blackness in Guatemala. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? That's a big question. Uh, it was it was absolutely hellacious, and it was also enlightening in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it's a oh God. It's it's such. I've been asked this question so many times, Stephen. It's it's just a hard entry point because so much happened in that time and space. So I did a what's called a dark retreat and was in basically a concrete room, very small, that had a shower, had a toilet, that food was brought to like a double mailbox system. So, you know, one door would be open, food would be slid in, they'd close their side, I'd open mine. Um, it is the an- It was the answer to what happens when you take absolutely every possible distraction away from someone besides their basic body functions and food? And you do that for an extended period of time. So I asked people, like, imagine you know, what your life was like three days without a phone. You're like, oh, man, I, I was so much more relaxed. I thought about X, Y, and Z. Or you know, the last time you lost power. And then you could, oh, I just read a book. I'm like, okay, now get rid of that. Get rid of music. Get rid of personal human touch. Get rid of conversation. Get rid of, uh, li- and then get rid of light. So it's an entirely introspective journey of what's underneath the surface of my daily consciousness. And then throughout the month, what's underneath that and underneath that and underneath that? And what's just, what have I buried and tucked away in the farthest corners of my life or in my, you know, my brain of my being, whatever it may be. And what will resurface or what will surface if given the space, what needs to come out up and out that I had no idea of, as well as just what's, what's underneath all this consciousness, you know, I'd watch like I spent an entire day lying on my back once in one of the days just watching like film of my entire schooling, my entire school life, you know, from kindergarten through 12th grade, just sat there and, and watched like, oh, yeah, that's first grade. Oh, there's so-and-so in the back sitting behind me. Oh, there's that teacher. Oh, that's us at recess. Oh, here's us, you know, playing on the playground. Here's et cetera. Stuff that I couldn't, if you told me today, hey, I want you to think about, you know, third grade, who was four seats back and two over to the right, I couldn't tell you. But that day I could because I could, it was almost like having a panoramic, like if I'd had a GoPro on me for my entire life and I could go back through the footage. So there was, you know, a lot of remembrance, a lot of like life review and uh, experience review and, and both good and bad. And, and so it's, it's, you know, it's what is in you? What's, what's still left in your brain? What, what is underneath all of that? And for me, it was sorting through an extraordinary amount of pain because I, I'm dealing with the miscarriage, I'm dealing with my divorce, I'm dealing with what I feel like is my life being, you know, falling apart around me. And in that room, having nowhere to go with it, but to sit in it. Like I couldn't hop on my phone and call someone and be like, hey, I'm really upset. This I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z. Or hey, I've just had this epiphany that 
X, Y, and Z happened. Shit, I still got 21 more days before I get out of here before I can talk to someone about this or help process it with anybody. Um, there was the availability to ask for someone to come in and sit with me or chat with me or, or talk to me, but I didn't want it. I wanted to you know, really, really sit in the depth of that fire and say, all right, I'm on my own here. Working through this process will be as valuable as the outcome of having worked through it. So it's... You know, it's as horrific as it sounds, and yet as amazing as it sounds to be on the other side of it. You know, I've told people I think everybody should also do a dark retreat if you think you can live through it. And that's a big question. And maybe it's not a matter of doing it for a month. I picked an extraordinary amount of time because I really wanted to see uh, what would happen to myself. It was almost a a stepped back observation experiment of will I go crazy? I think I probably will. What will it be like to watch myself go crazy? What will it be like to experience insanity on that level? And then what will it be like to experience life after that, having coming out of it if I'm okay when I do? And making the, the actual uh, commitment to I'm willing to go crazy to find out. So if I walk out of this room, and I'm fucked in the head, then so be it. Uh, I'm willing to take that chance. So it was a lot of stuff happening in there. Trevor, that's really fascinating stuff. And and unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, where can people find out about you? I mean, I've, I've been telling people, uh, I was telling people earlier, they should really check out your blog. It's very hilarious. Thank you. And I particularly like the bit, like I said, where you insult me uh, terribly for like, several paragraphs. But anyway... <laughs> Where can they read this uh, literary uh, masterpiece that I'm, I'm pushing here? <laughs> so, yeah, my website is traverbohm.com. That's T-R-A-V-E-R-B-O-E-H-M. And if you go to the blog under the, the setting of the Year to Live project, you'll have my entire year of blogging. Uh, I also do a daily write-up on Instagram and that's at Traver Bohm as well. And so I put a lot of comments there or even stories from the past year. Um, my very last hospice patient, Ernest, just passed away, I think, a week or so ago. And so I wrote a story up about him and uh, shared some video I had uh, from him. So those are the two best places, TraverBohm.com or, or Instagram right now. Great. I'll put those, those links in the show note. And guys, I'd really recommend checking out Traver's stuff checking out his writing he's he's a guy who's living he's living his adventure his exploration really uh, all in um, and is very inspiring and, and I think you'll you'll really enjoy his blog so thanks so much Traver for joining me on the podcast thank you for having me 